We are in our final part of our series called Table Conversations. We've been going through this series uh, over four weeks, and this is the fifth week of our series. And throughout this series, we've been looking at much of Jesus' teaching uh, that, he, uh, that he did around the table. Um, we've spent some time looking at many of the several occasions that Jesus shared some meals with other people. Uh, and he used these meals both as the place and as the teaching tool to teach people about the kingdom of God. And today, what we're going to be doing is looking at probably the most well-known meal that Jesus ever had with people, which was the Last Supper. Now, you might know the Last Supper by a whole range of different names. You might know it as communion. This is probably the language that we most often use here. You might know this as the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. This simply depends on your background that you have had uh, as you have been growing up. And this is the meal of Jesus that has been most well remembered over the past 2,000 years, with many churches actively remembering this meal every single week uh, that they gather together. The Last Supper, it's been remembered not just by taking communion uh, on Sundays, but it's also become the inspiration behind several pieces of art, including one of the most well-known pieces of art uh, in history, which is uh, The Last Supper of Jesus by Leonardo da Vinci. This was Jesus' last meal that he had with his disciples before he was crucified. And you can see the accounts of The Last Supper in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark and Luke. So on the screen, so we just go to the next slide, please, Lizelle, thank you. You can see uh, the three different uh, moments throughout the Gospels where you can read about the, uh, the, uh, the Last Supper of Jesus. And in all of these different versions, they are almost identical in their description of what happens during this meal. And so uh, what you might like to do as we're going through this over the next little while, you might like to open to one of these so that you can uh, see uh, what the, the meal that Jesus has had with his disciples. Now in this meal, I'm not going to read through all of these, in this meal we see Jesus sharing in the most important time of remembrance throughout the Jewish calendar, which was the Passover. And he's doing this with the people who are the closest to him. This meal that Jesus takes, it looks back to the Exodus when the Israelites were in slavery and they are remembering when God's Spirit passed over the Israelite houses, protecting them from the, uh, from the final plague. And in this meal, they would drink wine, which would represent the blood of the lamb that was shed and put on the, uh, on the posts of each door. The bread, it would represent God's provision for the journey out of slavery and into the wilderness, uh, into freedom. They would also eat the meat of an unblemished lamb that was very important, needed to be unblemished, at the Passover. Now, this was also to remember God's protection and his provision for the people as they prepared their journey to escape the Egyptians from slavery. So, in the Passover, they were remembering two main things. They were remembering God's protection and they were remembering God's provision both as he passed over uh, during the final plague. And in this moment, when Jesus shares the Passover with the people who are closest to him, he links what happened back then, several thousand years before, uh, up to his upcoming sacrifice that he is about to make on the cross. Now, he himself is the unblemished lamb that is going to be sacrificed 
for the people. Now his blood will be the blood that will be poured out and provide protection. Now this bread will be eaten to remember his broken body, which provides salvation and freedom from sin. And so with this meal, Jesus is linking the old covenant to his new covenant, which requires even greater sacrifice, but also greater reward. So this meal of communion has a history that dates back not just to Jesus, but dates back even further, all to the time of Moses. But over the past 2,000 years, since uh, this meal has been taken to remember Jesus' sacrifice, um, there's been a lot of conjecture and disagreement about what this meal really means. Some of the most heated theological debates of all history have been debated over this particular topic. Depending on the background of the church that some of you may have grown up in, you may even yourself have different understandings about what communion really means when we come together uh, and we have this meal together. A few years ago, I was going to, um, going to my parents' church. I was visiting there, uh, and this was an Anglican church that they were attending at this time. Now, there were many things that were different during this service as I attended there. Um, it was much more liturgical. The sermon was much shorter. Uh, the outfit of the minister was very different from what I wear, similar colours to today, however, uh, but they had much longer time set aside for communion. Now, as we were invited to take communion, I thought it just best to follow what everyone else did. I walked up to the front of the church, I knelt down in front of the minister, he wiped the cup that everyone else was drinking from. This was a bit different for me and I found this a little bit gross, but I was told it's, uh, it's okay. Uh, and he prepared to give me a sip from this cup. The difference was, is that I had spent most of my time growing up in Baptist churches and when I had taken the cup myself, typically what I have done is I have drunk this very quickly and uh, I've drunk the juice fairly, uh, fairly quickly. And so what I thought I would do is just do the same as I have always done when I've taken the cup. I took a big swig from this cup and suddenly I realised this is no normal grape juice. This was some fairly strong wine. Afterwards, I took a deep breath and I walked back to my seat and the rest of this service was the most relaxed I've ever been throughout a church service. <laughs> this practice of how they did communion was fairly different from what I am usually familiar with and what some of us may be familiar with. But some of you may have had experiences like this as you have been growing up. Some of you may have different views of what you understand communion to be. There are a range of beliefs throughout the Christian church today. The official Catholic stance of communion is that the bread and wine are transformed after a blessing from the priest into Christ's actual body and blood. Now, of course, it's obvious to, uh, to anyone that the form of the bread and the wine doesn't change. It still looks and smells and tastes like ordinary bread and wine, but the teaching is that the substance has somehow changed. The inner hidden essence of the elements has changed. 
And then a few hundred years ago, this guy Luther came along and he took a different perspective on what he saw in Scripture through the Lord's table. Luther argued that the bread and the wine coexists with Christ's body and blood. And so the analogy that is somehow taught by people who, uh, who believe this is that uh, it's like a sponge full of water. The sponge isn't the water, the water isn't the sponge, but the two are there are together with each other. Then you have John Calvin, another reformer who came along, and he was still not happy about the view that Luther had taken, and he argued that the bread and wine helps bring the Spirit's presence to believers. This is sometimes called the, uh, the spiritual presence view. And then there's a view that many of us would be familiar with, who, which was taught by the, uh, by the reformer Zwingli. He taught that the bread and wine are symbols of Christ's body and blood. So Zwingli sorry, saw the words of Jesus, do this in remembrance of me, and he saw these as the key uh, phrase in what Jesus was sharing. And so at the Last Supper, Zwingli's argument was, uh, was that Jesus wasn't teaching anything amazing happens to the bread and the wine. Nothing necessarily happens to the elements themselves. The point of taking communion was the sacrifice of Jesus and what that meant for people. This is the view that many of us uh, may understand of communion. But as I have spent time reflecting on this, I've been wondering, could there be something more to it? Could there be something more to simply understanding it as, do this in remembrance of me? Is there more than just remembering the sacrifice of Jesus? A few years ago, I was at a, uh, at a youth pastor's retreat. I have spent uh, the, the majority of my pastoral ministry as a youth and young adults pastor, and I loved connecting with other youth pastors. And one of my favourite points of contact with other youth pastors throughout the year um, was, a, uh, was a retreat I used to go on. And at the end of a retreat I went on several years ago, the person who was running the retreat thought it would be a good idea to share communion together. This wasn't planned in any way, and it was just done off the cuff at the end of this retreat time. And so we began looking around for different things that we might be able to use for communion together. And because this was a youth pastor's retreat, the two things that we found that we thought could work was creaming soda and fantastic rice crackers. This was the best tasting communion I've ever had in my life. The leader, he shared a, uh, a brief devotion with us, and then we took communion together. Afterwards, however, I was chatting to one of the other pastors who was very upset about the communion that we had taken. He felt it was too relaxed. It wasn't reflective enough. And he was very upset that we hadn't used, more, uh, that we hadn't used actual grape juice and bread. Now, for me at this stage, I was really confused about why this pastor was so upset. I mean, taking this creaming soda and these fantastic rice crackers, we had still remembered Jesus and his sacrifice. But did he have a point? Is there something more to it that I was missing? This pastor, he was upset primarily about the elements 
uh, that we used, which I didn't really think was that much of an issue, but he did get me thinking a bit more intentionally about communion, the, uh, the Lord's Supper, and whether or not it's simply uh, about remembering Jesus or if there's something more to it. Now, at the Last Supper, Jesus was clearly teaching us to remember his sacrifice whenever we gather with other believers and eat a meal together. Some of us might do this by saying grace. We might remember Jesus' sacrifice as we share grace before a meal. But at that time during the early church, it was also clear that they did not simply remember Jesus' sacrifice when they had meals with one another, but there were also specific ceremonies and services that the church took part in when they gathered to have communion together and remember the sacrifice of Jesus. How often did the church do this? We don't really know. Was it on the first Sunday uh, in the morning service of the month and on the third Sunday uh, at the night service? Pretty unlikely, but it was clear that there were times throughout the early church that they would come together and share a special meal of communion with one another as a time to remember Christ's death on the cross. And we see one of these instances uh, throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, particularly throughout 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, we see people coming together to share in communion with one another. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up to 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to 34, and we'll read this together. It'll be up there on the screen as well. <coughs> it says, in the following directives, this is Paul speaking, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt, there have to be some differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord... We are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. 
So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I'll give further directions. What I want to do for the remainder of our time is just look at these first six verses, uh, particularly from verses 17 to 22, because I think this can help us understand there's something more to communion. Now, when Paul writes this, uh, at the beginning of this chapter, he has been singing the praises of the Corinthian church throughout the first half. And suddenly, Paul takes the Corinthians on a bit of a roller coaster and changes his language. I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. And then he uses some of the most harsh language I see through any of his letters in how he speaks to the Corinthian church. It feels a little bit like the Corinthians have been sent to the principal's office and they're getting a stern talking to for their bad behaviour. Now, Paul is specifically speaking to the gatherings of the Corinthian church when they come together and share in communion with one another. But unlike how we share in communion today, people in the Corinthian church would come together and they would have a big meal with one another. They would essentially have uh, like a potluck dinner before they had communion, and this was called the love feast. And so everyone would bring something that they had cooked from home, they would share in the love feast with one another and after this then they would take communion remembering the sacrifice of Jesus together and this love feast would mean that everyone who was part of the church would come together and eat with one another but the issue that the church seemed to face in uh, in Corinth is that in these love feasts the rich people of the church were bringing lots of food and wine, and often the poor people were bringing little or nothing at all. And the rich began to think, this isn't fair. How is it fair that I am bringing all of this amazing food and wine, and there are other people in the church who are bringing nothing? And so what they decided to do, the rich people in the church of Corinth, is they would protect their food, even though they had brought it, and they would eat all of it quickly themselves, and they would drink all of the wine themselves, and this meant that the poor had nothing to eat, and the rich would eat and drink so much of their own food that, uh, and, and wine that often they w- this would result in them getting drunk. Now, Paul's point a little bit later on is that you have your own homes where you are able to go and eat anything you want. Why are you coming to these gatherings trying to look good by bringing lots of food and then eating it all yourself? There were people starving at these gatherings, whilst others were eating ridiculous amounts. And the surprising thing I see here is that this is the church. There were some clear distinctions that other people looking on could see. There was a class system that was developing with the church of rich people and poor people. This is not some random group of people meeting together. Now, because of the way that people are sharing in this love feast with one another, Paul says to them that there is no point in even bothering to have communion together 
you might as well not even bother remember the sacrifice of Jesus because your behaviour is so atrocious that you clearly don't understand the sacrifice of Jesus. Now, when you look at this and you see that people were hoarding food and wine for themselves and other people are off to the side starving and there is a rich and a poor class system developing, you would think that Paul's primary rebuke of the Corinthian church is that they are being selfish and gluttonous. I mean, Paul's speaking about having too much and others having nothing. But the problem with the Corinthian church isn't that they are being gluttonous or selfish, The problem that Paul sees is their division. In verse 18, this is Paul's point. Their division, in their case by wealth and social status, this is the problem that's leading to these gatherings becoming a farce. There is a view of the rich of the church that they are somehow better and superior or different than the poor of the church. And anyone who looked onto these gatherings, they could see clearly that there was a division that was developing. There were those who had much and those who had little. They saw a divided church. And because of this, Paul says that when they took the Lord's Supper, it means nothing. They are not remembering Christ. They are dishonoring Christ when they take communion together. Now, for us here today... Generally speaking, we don't have divisions within our church or most churches, at least in such a distinct way, by wealth and social class in the same way that the Corinthians did. I would be horrified if we had a meal after a service and we all bring food together and some people decide to just eat their own food and not share it with anyone else. But it seems to me like like the Corinthian church, that there is still division that continues to be one of the most harmful things within the worldwide church today. And unfortunately, in many instances, it doesn't seem to be getting better. In some ways, it seems to be growing. (coughs) One of the previous churches I was pastoring there was a church, this church was going through some fairly severe conflicts. And this season of conflict that they were going through was primarily to do with the direction of the church. And it was one of those seasons, unfortunately, where this church had battles being fought on a fairly regular daily basis. Now, on one Sunday in particular, I was leading worship, and after the first song in the service there was a large contingent of maybe 10 or more people who had left the room and made their way into the foyer. There was a discussion happening between these 10 or so people, um, which happened after the service, and I discovered that what they were doing was they were discussing and strategizing about how they could win their side of the battle. After the first few songs, one of the elders of the church, he hopped up, the front to lead us in communion and so everyone sat down and because it was clear that communion was about to happen this contingent of about 10 people came back into the service and they sat to take part in communion at the end of the elders time of leading communion he said 
Now let's share in the bread and the cup as a sign of our unity in Christ. As a young man, I was confused and surprised at what had just happened and what had just been said. Are we really going to share communion as a sign of our unity? Really? After what has literally been happening in the past half an hour, how can we have this meal together as a sign of unity when there is such division between us at the moment? Division, unfortunately, is still very much prevalent in the church. I've been horrified to see, even in recent years, how the issue of vaccinations has become a reason where one believer wouldn't associate with another believer. Ironically, one of the things I get most surprised by is that the issue of communion has been (laughs) the issue of most conflict within the church and division within the church. The very thing that is there to bring believers together around the cross of Christ is the very thing that has caused some of the worst divisions in church history. Now, there is no problem with healthy disagreements between believers. We have different perspectives on all kinds of things, and that's not a bad thing. But I think that we can often err too far on the end of cancelling people that we don't agree with on secondary or even less important issues. But communion is supposed to be the thing that draws all of us back to the centre of our faith to share together. And the centre of our faith is the cross of Jesus Christ. Is there something more to communion than just remembering Jesus' sacrifice? Yes. This is an important part of what we do. We remember the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus told us to do this when we share this meal together. But this act is inherently a communal act that is supposed to demonstrate our unity with one another. I'm just going to invite the team to, uh, to come up right now. This meal that we share together Paul's rebuke of the Corinthian church was that they had no unity with one another and there was division with one another and that through this division, it made their taking of communion pointless. This meal that we share together, we do it in remembrance of Jesus, but this is not an alone act that we do together. This is something that we do communally to demonstrate our unity with one another around the cross of Jesus. And so what we're going to do this morning, we're going to come and we're going to take communion together. We're going to do things a little bit differently today. Um, I'm going to invite you to come forward and get some uh, communion elements during this next song. Um, At any point during this next song, if you want to come and grab some of the communion elements from here up the front, that would be appreciated. Um, And when you collect these, I invite you to hold on to the elements and then we will take them together. But I want to put a condition on this. If you genuinely believe in your heart, if you know that you have division with another believer right now, I just want to encourage you to not take the elements at this point. What I want to encourage you to do is to collect the elements, maybe take an extra lot. 
I encourage you to go to the person that you feel you have division with. Seek reconciliation and forgiveness over the issue that you have division with. And then offer to have communion with them as a sign of your unity in Christ. The Lord's Supper, communion, is not supposed to be taken with division present. Paul's language is clear. Where division exists, the Lord's Supper doesn't mean anything. So if you can honestly say in your heart that you feel like there is division between yourself and another believer, I really do invite you to grab the elements, hold on to them, feel free to to hold on these even throughout the week if you need to, and seek reconciliation with the person that you have division with. Seek forgiveness between yourself and this person before you take these elements. Just as uh, as the team begin to to lead us in this next song, I invite you to take, uh, to, to come and collect these elements and then I'll come up and we'll share in them together if you are ready to do that. So let's pray together. Lord, we do pray for a greater sense of love and unity in the church. Lord, we pray this for the worldwide church, but we also pray for this in our own midst. God, will you grow us into a family that loves one another well. And God, if there is right now anyone who has a sense that they have division between themselves and another believer, God, I do ask that you will bring that to their mind. God, I ask that this will be a place of reconciliation and forgiveness, that this will be a place where we are able to set aside secondary and less important issues, and we are able to centre ourselves around the cross of Christ. More than anything, King Jesus, we just want to thank you for what you have done for us. Thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. We thank you that you have chosen us, that you have decided to come to this earth and give your life for the ransom of many. And so God, I do pray that as we prepare to take this meal, that our eyes and our hearts will be turned towards Jesus, that we will remember the beauty of the cross, but that we will also seek to do this in unity with one another, united around what really matters, the cross of Christ. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.